Welcome to Common Ground YYC on Livewire Calgary. Reviendra à la ville de Calgary. Today, Calgary is a different place than it was yesterday. All right, welcome to episode 15, Common Ground YYC. I'm your host, Josh White. I'm joined by Derek Fildebrandt. Welcome, Derek. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> You've been messaging me on Twitter for a long time, and I've not been duly responsive. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I, I have been keen to have you on uh, for a while. I think the first time I ever came across you, I was in a panel at the Calgary Real Estate Board. You were on the panel right in front of me. It was a Young Guns panel you were on with, uh, I think it was like Chris Harper and Aaron Deep Singh and a couple other. This is when you were at the Taxpayers Federation, I believe. And mm-hmm. I remember being in the next panel going like, hey, I'm, I'm young. Why? Why am I not? I'm only a couple years older than these guys. Why am I not on the Young, young Guns panel? I was just on the normal panel. Uh, no, it was interesting. Well, to I listen. remember we all had beards, so we looked older. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. You guys did look older. And, you know, and, and you've certainly gained a lot of political experience since then. Why don't you start by, for those who, who listen to this podcast and don't know, they might have heard your name, but don't know a lot about you. T- talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, in politics? Well, I hate politicians, but I love politics. I, um, Why do you hate yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just hate the whole political class, you know, left, right, or center. It's just the, uh, the idea of, you know, your whole job is just to keep your job and everything else is secondary. You know, I grew up with politics around the dinner table sometimes, but, you know, we were never family that ever sought office. Or and you anything. grew up in Ontario, was it? Or? A, most, a bunch of little army and air force towns scattered yeah. across the country, disproportionately okay. in Ontario, but also in Iowa. I, I, I grew up a lot. I was a bit of a nomad as a kid. Okay. Um, I went to Carleton University because I had family in Ottawa. I could stay with them to save some money. And, uh, you know, I had been involved uh, when I was in university, I got involved in uh, conservative politics. I was even then kind of always experimenting with, uh, you know, kind of a fusion of libertarians and conservatives and trying to bridge the gap between them. But by the time I left university, I didn't really want that much to do with politics. Having been in Ottawa, I just saw how kind of disgusting it was. And but I was always interested in public policy and, and issues affecting us, how our money is spent, um, the power of government, and what I think should be the lack thereof. Uh, and that led me uh, not into partisan politics, but into the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And I really liked that. It was a way for me to express my views, my view on the role of government, and uh, the belief in the need to restrain it, both in, both in expenditures and spending, but also in its powers to control your life in many other ways. But that all came to an end uh, right after the floor cro- the mass floor crossing in Alberta 2014 when uh, Danielle Smith and two-thirds of the Wild Rose Caucus crossed the floor of the Jim Prentice PCs. And for me, I had uh, I'd become a pretty passionate supporter of the Wild Rose, not a member or openly uh, supportive because I, I couldn't be with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But when that happened, I felt that my, my vote had been stolen, that... Um, that I had no voice. There was no way in hell I was going to support the old Tories. And uh, I was faced with almost an existential question of, if I don't run, who am I going to vote for? And that's how I got in. Great. So you touched a little bit on, you know, some of your philosophical underpinnings. You know, first of all, how you how would you self-describe uh, your politics and your, your political philosophy? You touched on words like libertarian and conservative. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean to you? Well, I'm... I'm in the very, very fortunate position where I got to name my own political party. So I got to be exactly what I consider myself, a freedom conservative. Okay. Or I've, I've used terms like liberty conservative before because I'm, I'm not uh, what you would call a pure libertarian. Uh, now, what is a pure libertarian? I mean, I guess it's easier to describe than a pure conservative because a conservative is a moving target. A, a conservative is in many ways just a liberal 10 years ago. Um, you know, if you want to get into the philosophical sense of, of the Burkean sense of a conservative, yeah. it is not opposed to change. 
um, but it is it's more cautious in its approach. It's not jumping headlong into change. It's it's sort of the uh, it's not opposing that the ship is going somewhere, but it wants to have an anchor dragging along yeah. the bottom. Values institutions and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm a conservative in some senses, um, and in the how we consider conservative today on on some different policies, but I'm also a libertarian in that um, I, I don't share the views of some conservatives of using the power of government to impose our will on other people. I, I view it as equally distasteful as when the left does it. Um, you know, what is a pure libertarian? I mean, in some senses, you can almost get border into anarchy in terms of there being almost no government. I'm not, uh, I'm not anywhere close to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, libertarians, though, when they run as just libertarians, they rarely get more than a percentage of the vote. You know, you got, it'll be a Gary Johnson or something. You have an exception to that with the odd Ron Paul who comes out. Uh, but I really looked to someone like Rand Paul, who is conservative and libertarian, who understands, who really believes in the supremacy of freedom uh, above all else, but understands the values of institutions, of nationhood, of, of community, uh, some of those things that conservatives value as well. Um, so yeah, I would, uh, I, I've always tried to, I've always been a fusion of, of, of the two, of the two. Uh, then we kind of just settled on the term freedom conservative. Uh, but also I'd add into that dimension uh, uniquely to Alberta is uh, what you might uh, vaguely call Alberta patriotism. You know, a belief in Alberta exceptionalism, that there is something special about Alberta. I, I chose Alberta. I, I was not born here. Uh, I looked to Alberta my whole life as sort of the, the shining city on the hill. You know, and the town I went to high school in, wasn't a lot of opportunity. Uh, it was Trenton, Ontario. I lost friends to drugs, uh, lost them into the petty criminal world. Uh, those of us who got out, uh, you either you joined uh, the army, all my friends fought in Afghanistan, or you got out. Uh, very few of us got out uh, in ways that wasn't in the army. But what's kind of funny is a lot of my very best friends, we all ended up in Alberta. And it wasn't coordinated. We all kind of lost each other for almost 10 years and we all just kind of ended up here again yeah. uh, scattered across Alberta from Fort McMurray uh, to Medicine Hat and so I, 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 I chose Alberta because it was something special uh, some Albertans are born with that sense in them but it's actually in many cases you know a lot of people say well Alberta's losing its sense of itself because of all these people coming from the east actually many of the people coming from the east come here not just for a job because but because they, they love what Alberta stands for and I, you don't get this in Ontario because Ontario is over one third of the country. They don't consider themselves a province because they're one third of the country. It's they're just Upper Canada, almost quite literally. And so I, you know, my daughter was born here. She's two years old. My daughter's, uh, my my wife is uh, born and raised uh, Calgarian. And I, uh, I have a real strong sense of the need for Alberta to be treated equally in Canada. That. Um, but an understanding that that is never going to happen by asking nicely. It's not even going to happen by shaking our fist. Yeah. The rest of Canada is never going to listen to us unless we're we're deadly serious about what we're willing to do to get it. Yeah, I want to pick up on that thread in particular in a moment. But I want to talk a little bit more about sort of that libertarian philosophy. And, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about the idea that you're not sort of, you don't consider yourself a pure libertarian in the sense that, you know, no government and that kind of aspect you believe in a sort of a constrained type of government where do you see those constraints happening where do you where do you view things like pragmatism in your in your political philosophy so if there's something that you know versus sort of ideological purity so if you mm -hmm. see something that government does well or works or a regulation that you think is a reasonable constraint is that something you buy into or is it something you in most cases will rally against for in the, in the service of mm -hmm. Um, you know, limited government and, 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 and aligning more purely with, with your ideology. Where's that balance yeah. struck for you? Well, ideology's kind of become a dirty word, yeah. um, but I don't think it should be if used appropriately. I mean, anyone in politics, any politician or anyone involved in a party who doesn't have a quote-unquote ideology means they don't believe in anything other than just being in power. Uh, if you are, you know, if you say, I have no ideology, I'm just here for good ideas that, that generally means that you'll fly with whatever idea comes and you don't have any underpinning of a of an actual philosophical worldview yeah. that being said i over being overly ideologically rigid 
um, is also dangerous and uh, not just bad, not just that you won't win government perhaps, but it's also just bad government. I view ideology or your philosophical underpinnings of what the role of government is more as, think of them as the North Star and you're a ship and you're trying to steer towards it. But if you see an island in the way or a reef, you should probably steer around it. There yeah. is going to be obstacles because there is never a clear path. The winds blow in different directions and you'll have to tack. There'll be obstacles in the way. So I would, yeah, as my ideology would be a conservative libertarian or a freedom conservative. Uh, but the world is never that easy and perfect. There will be circumstances where... Uh, where your ideology doesn't fit perfectly into it. Now, I would be much more rigid than many other conservatives. I don't believe, uh, you know, I was the only MLA to stand against the government coming in to um, artificially curtail oil production. That's a policy better suited to Venezuela than to Alberta, in my view. Uh, that's an area where I didn't think bending made sense. I And that's where the NDP and the UCP in that instance actually aligned. NDP, UCP, Alberta Party, Liberals. Yeah. You had 87 MLAs in Alberta, and I was the only one to stand up against it. Um, but, uh, and, well, and but that's, it's not an you, uncommon thing. I'm often think there the only was, one against it. But do you think there was no pragmatic sense in terms of, like, stemming well, the bleeding? I understood their moment? arguments. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't dismiss them just because my ideology says X, therefore I must dismiss it. I... I looked at it, but on balance, I didn't think it was a good enough argument to make such a draconian intervention into the marketplace. You know, there is, as I was saying, there is no actual conservative ideology. It, uh, it is a moving target. You know, it's essentially, what's the difference between a red Tory and a blue Tory? A uh, red Tory is a liberal of five years ago. A blue Tory is a, is a liberal of uh, ten years ago. I'm another term I might use as a classical liberal. So I'm actually a liberal of a hundred years ago. I, I would fit into Sir Wilfrid Laurier's party. Right. Um, so I, I I don't want no government because that, that would be outright anarchism. Libertarians aren't anarchists, but although on some edges of it they could push it to getting close to it. You know where I would part ways with some libertarians is I do believe in borders. Yeah. Uh, you know a nation is an, also an expression of property, and people have a right to. To decide who comes onto their property and who does not. Uh, I support immigration, but limited levels, uh, reasonable levels. Uh, our, our platform calls for Alberta to do as Quebec has done to take provincial control over immigration, and we would tie those levels to the rate of unemployment. Uh, when we've got a high unemployment, I believe we should significantly curtail immigration levels. When we've got low unemployment, I think we should significantly increase them. I don't consider that so much a matter of ideology as simply responding to market demands. So. I, I, about about sort of the the idea of the these sort of maybe different st strains of conservative thinking and politics, you know, what's your view on you know is there we've seen you know both in the Alberta context and in the national context and you know in in international context as well as you know you've had these factions of conservative thinking that have they've consolidated and united under a tent they've fractured and separated under different parties and and ideological strains you know you know in alberta in the canadian context you know there there's been movements to unite those and try and live under a bigger tent do you think that's a realistic possibility do you think that's a desirable thing just in term electorally or do you or do you feel like you know you you're a leader of your your own party there were circumstances that led you to that but and you were i think a champion of of, of unity at, at one point. How do you view that tension across those factions and what's the future of conservative movements if those factions can't cooperate under a big tent, despite some real philosophical differences on issues? Uh, no, it's a good set of questions. <laughs> uh, I, if I leave... It's a long for a podcast. So yeah, uh, if I... I don't. If I forget to answer one part of that sure, question, sure, sure. Uh, bring it back to me. I, I'll, I, I don't want to dodge around any of it. Um, I was the very first uh, MLA in the Wild Rose to come out to openly support merger with the progressive conservatives uh, because I believed we would get the best of both, that we would get, you know, the Wild Rose, we were always the underdog, we were the scrappy ones, the PCs were the cool kids, they, they had the money, they had the political experts, they had expertise and uh, more suave. Uh, and some institutional support that just didn't want to ever support the more ragtag, blue-collar Wild Rose. But the Wild Rose had the principles and the policies I supported. It was grassroots, bottom-up for the most part at least. 
Uh, and I thought we would get the best of both. And Jason Kenney convinced me that that would be the case. Um, but as soon as Jason Kenney had the leadership secured of the UCP, uh, he completely threw almost all the wild rosers under the bus to one degree or another. He surrounded himself simply, uh, most people don't know the names of these people, but uh, he surrounded himself by the old guard of the PC party, uh, just old-fashioned political, old Tammany Hall-style operators. That... Do you think he's guilty of sort of that centralizing of oh, power? Hyper. That... Hyper. Hyper, hyper guilty of that. Uh, that being said, that's not a phenomenon limited to any one ideology necessarily. Uh, I might be biased in saying so, but the, the only strain that's ever really caught on in Canada, and Alberta in particular, that doesn't do so, is kind of coming from that old prairie populist tradition that is decentralized yeah. as a fundamental part of its philosophy. Very unrelated, but I guess pertinent would be kind of coming from that social credit yeah. uh, uh, tradition into the Reform Party and the Alliance and the Wild Rose. I, I think conservatives... In our electoral system, uh, there is a lot of advantages to conservatives working together. I, I, I think it's normally for the best, but there has to be good reason for it other than just power. Power, obtaining, winning elections is an important part of the political system, uh, but uh, not at any cost. And, and what I've seen with the UCP is just the complete abdication of principle. Um, both on democratic principles and conservatism itself for the naked pursuit of power. Um, and we need to balance those things. You know, what are the necessary compromises we need to make? What, uh, you know, any political, political parties are not homogenous. They are a coalition of a bunch of different interests, sometimes hundreds of interests. Yeah. And you try to find a common cause on them and no one's going to get a hundred percent of their way, a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Um, but that coalition needs to offer more than just power. Yeah, and that's essentially what I'm seeing with Jason Kenney and the UCP is, it's uh, purely just about power, um, and the pursuit of it. So I I felt the need to see a, a different kind of conservative option in Alberta once what Jason Kenney was doing with the UCP became apparent that we needed a conservative option that reflects um, conservatives who don't. Uh, necessarily believe in using the power of government to impose their will on others, a more, a more freedom-based conservatism, and very, very importantly, possibly even more importantly, um, an option beyond even conservatism that reflects the reality of Alberta's state, a place in confederation right now, yeah. that Al many Albertans are ready to cut the cord with Ottawa, uh, but many Albertans like myself, who are still proud to be Canadians, but uh, deeply ashamed of our constitutional relationship with Ottawa, uh, believe that it's worth one last round to try and salvage that relationship, that that relationship needs to be backed by, uh, that, that attempt to save the relationship needs to be backed by a legitimate threat of independence, uh, and that if that relationship can't be saved, that, that we're willing to do that. And I just don't see a career politician who spent majority of his life as a politician in Ottawa uh, who's never raised an issue of equalization once when he was there as the guy to do it. Let's let's go there right now. The Alberta place in Alberta's place in Confederation because it's it's the it's the topic of a lot of conversation. A lot of it's manifest from anger and frustration on on where I think many Albertans feel you know the 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 proper role of the federal government being in moving uh, projects of national interest along. A lot of people would in this province suggest that something like market access for natural resources and pipelines as a source of that they see that you know given that responsibility in a federal system for the federal government to move those things along and it being stymied by provincial interests and other interests that um, it's starting to raise questions about the efficacy of how our confederation is working i think you've talked a lot about that theme you were you seem much more willing to go to some of those places you talked about uh, in, in a more of a confrontational stance in our in our confederation you suggested that maybe you don't want to go there you want to salvage that idea but what's the utility in in going to a place where you know quebec has gone many times where threats of separation and you're really an adversarial stance towards confederation sort of a sense of unique identity in in the country it's sort of 
it's all it, you know many other Canadians across the country feel that sort of like a, a type of extortion within mm-hmm. within within Confederation. Why do you think that's a necessary tact? And is there risk of sort of a backfire if we take such a confrontational stance versus Ottawa and the rest of the country on these types of questions? I've got a few questions. So if I forget to answer one, <laughs> Sorry. I'm not doing the politician thing of answering the ones I like and not the ones I don't. Fair there's, there's a, bring yeah. it back to me if I, if I forget. Yeah, I, I realize that's a complex question. It is a complex issue. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, but if I forget any dynamic of it, feel free to bring it back to me. Fair enough. Um, Quebec has played a game. Uh, very successfully. It's it's a term uh, that their government coined, I believe, in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, called profitable federalism. They wanted, you know, so many genuinely there wanted independence on ethno-nationalistic grounds, um, but many were willing to use it as a trump card to extort the federal government, extort the rest of the country to bring more money there, that they would have more powers, and they wouldn't have to pay for it. Alberta's different. Yes, we have a unique identity, but uh, we're not a fully different nation in the sense of a different language and culture. I mean, we have... There is a different culture in Alberta than there is in Ontario, but, you know, I mean, rural Alberta has more in common in many cases with rural Ontario than Edmonton would have more in common with Toronto. Yeah, the urban urban rural cultural split might be more profound than East-West, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In in many respects, it's it's the case. Not entirely, but, you know, it's it's not uh, an ethno-religious or nationalist argument the way it is in Quebec. It's just a matter of being treated justly, you know, to, to, to go on a little bit of a limb. You know, before the Americans declared independence, they considered themselves just to be Englishmen. And they just wanted equal rights with Englishmen living in England. That's all they wanted. You know, no taxation without representation. It wasn't about independence. It was about equality. You've heard it here first, uh, the Alberta Revolution. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not calling for um, the Bow River Tea Party. Uh, I'm not... I'm uh, not saying we need to go there, yeah. But you know, it's it, it's it's similar in the sense of I I don't think most Albertans there certainly in the area I represent there are a significant number of people who just want a way period and it's growing and but it's always been there but there's a growing sense of just if we can't be treated equally then we need then we need to then we need to cut the cord and I don't want to do this in a way that's uh, like Quebec, that is about profitable federalism and extorting others. Alberta doesn't need anyone else's money. For God's sakes, all we need to do is keep a bit more of our own. You know, Quebec uh, has its own police force, its own pension. It directly administers the justice system. So it's even got a gun registry So because they can administer the Firearms Act directly. They run their own immigration system, and they get massive amounts of money from uh, from Ottawa. I want the same rights over provincial jurisdiction for Alberta that Quebec has, that we have our own immigration, that we have that we have our own pensions, etc. The reason I think, I'll, actually I'll back up, long before I even got into elected politics, when I was with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, I've been writing about reforming equalization for a long time. I've authored chapters and books on equalization, about how we can reform it, how we can make it fairer, how we can actually make it actually more useful to the recipient provinces so that they're not so dependent on it. It's essentially a welfare program for provincial governments. I, I've been working on that. For you don't disagree with the principle of some sort of uh, leveling or some sort of distribu- distributive well, function? Well, the it... federal government does that anyway with some of the other programs with health transfers and social yes, transfers. Yeah, they, do. they do. So having an additional layer of equalization on top of that, I think, is too much. Too much. Yeah. It's too much. So I, But I, I, I've tried... To find ways to seek moderate, reasonable, and gradual changes to equalization that would be phased in over an entire decade with no traction. With when the federal conservatives were in Ottawa, with an Alberta prime minister, with Jason Kenney around the cabinet table, we got no traction. Yeah, what do you make of people like Jason Kenney saying things like, you know, threats of of, of referendum on equalization when he was, you know, well, in if, in government? Actually, I, I do want to come back to that. Okay, I, I, I do want to. Sure, I want to finish on this. That didn't go anywhere, even with a federal government that was genuinely Alberta-friendly. This was not a government that sought to screw over Alberta. This was, an Al- this was a government born and bred in Alberta by, by in large measure. But in order to obtain and retain national power, a government can't treat Alberta equally. It's the math. We have 
all the money and none of the votes. Yeah. The conservatives believe that in a worst-case scenario, they'll win every seat in Alberta minus a tiny, tiny handful. The liberals believe that in a best-case scenario, they won't win any seats in Alberta except for a tiny, tiny handful. So we are not a swing jurisdiction, no. but we got all the money. That makes us the least important place in Canada for a federal government. And it means that whenever push comes to shove, even a pro-Alberta government is always going to put the interests of part of the country that... Uh, is electoral advantage. Yeah. yeah. And so the idea of trying to find a national consensus to... Uh, slowly wean off or reform equalization. I've given up on everything I've written about before I got into politics. I've even given up on some of the reform ideas I put forward in my uh, first two years in elected politics. It's not going to happen. The only way anything's going to change, the only way Alberta's going to be treated equally, the only way we can end equalization is if there's a legitimate threat that Alberta will leave Confederation if not treated fairly. Because it's not, equalization is actually just a thin edge of the wedge. People really misunderstand so much about equalization. It's not a check from the provincial government no. to Ottawa. I mean, some people who defend equalization think that everybody who's against equalization think that. No, it's not. I understand. Uh, I'm probably one of 10 people in the country who actually understand equalization uh, in depth. But at the same time, equalization is actually only a small part of the transfer of funds out of Alberta. So ending equalization is just the thin edge of the wedge. So even if we ended equalization, Alberta still would pay massively more into Confederation than we would get out. Yeah. Uh, and so the only way Ottawa is ever going to budge on this issue is if they risk losing uh, the golden goose altogether. Some people will say, like, I've heard a lot of politicians point to, like, well, we have this big budget deficit in Alberta. And so obviously we're, we're, we're sliding from sort of have to have not status. But, you know, when I talk to... You know, the first guest on this podcast was was Trevor Toome. And he, you know, he says things like, you know, Alberta has so much economic activity, you know, even even in a downturn, we're just so much above average in terms mm -hmm. of income and GDP and all these sorts of things that we just ought not to have well, a deficit. And it just yeah. provides no justification whatsoever for in and of itself for a, a, a tinkering of equalization because that's a, well, that's a fiscal two issues. Exactly. That's, that's what, that's what he's yeah. yeah. So uh, Trevor, uh, what I like about Trevor is um, he's actually good on his facts. I just disagree with him on his opinions. Okay. But that's, but that's fair because at least yeah. he's dealing from a position of facts and I, and I like that. We can at least agree on uh, there's some common ground and it's, <laughs> <Hey -o>. <laughs> we so often can't even agree on the facts when yeah. we're having these discussions. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, even if we ended equalization tomorrow, it doesn't change our deficit. Right. That is different completely. And Trevor sometimes makes the mistake, I think though, of thinking that everyone who opposes equalization thinks that that ties into our provincial finances. It doesn't, but it ties into the finances of Albertans. Yes. People, not into our government. Right. Um, I think he would agree with that, probably. He yeah. would, because yeah. th that's the fact of it. Yeah. Um, Alberta's deficit is Alberta's fault. Yeah. That is not Ottawa's fault. That is Alberta's fault. Now, the fact that Quebec is running a big surplus, now, that is in large measure due to the taxes paid by Albertans, that Quebec is getting from transfers from transfers. Yeah. So the surplus in another province yeah. does have to do with equalization, but the deficit in Alberta does not. We need to get our own house in order. We have been running deficits for a decade now in Alberta under PC and NDP governments. No one's got a plan to fix it. Uh, the Tories are, I, I'll, I'll give them this. They're probably a bit more credible than the NDP on it, uh, but they're still based on fantastical economic growth projections that uh, would be literally the greatest boom in Alberta's history uh, that I just don't see happening. I don't... Yeah. It, if they, if I saw any economist predicting that boom, I'd get out of politics right now and just yeah. invest, invest, invest. But before we get... before I want to dive into the fiscal framework, sure. but I want to touch on some of the things you actually proposed with, with respect to sort of Alberta's place in Confederation and, and what do you think the end game is with respect to them. So stuff like withdrawing from Canada Revenue Agency to collect our own taxes. You know, all I see on the surface is you know, an additional layer of bureaucracy that exists federally that we would have to recreate provincially. What's the mm -hmm. utility in actually doing that other than to send some sort of signal? Is it a, is it a bargaining chip that we're not going to send our federal 
Texas <laughs> to to Ottawa until we have a, a you know a different uh, equalization framework. I heard Stephen Mandel float a similar kind of idea. What's I, I'm having trouble understanding what what the purpose of this idea is. So it's 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 twofold. Uh, it, it's well, it's, there's, it's multifaceted in the larger context. So I'll start broadly with different provincial powers. I want to repatriate to Alberta. Then we can talk about the individual okay. ones. Yeah. The goals are more control directly to Albertans, not diffused through the federal government, to keep more money in Alberta, and to uh, assert, uh, and, and I guess related to more control in Alberta, uh, is to assert uh, the dominance of an Alberta government over Albertans rather than a federal government over Albertans. Is that, is that power jurisdiction for jurisdiction's sake, or is there actual Some of it is right good now. public policy reasons so to have those? Much things. of it is for good public policy. Some of it is, I, I believe, in the principle of subsidiarity, that the lowest level of government should provide yeah. services uh, that, that is reasonable. I mean, your municipality should not... Uh, be in charge of the army. We, no. <laughs> we we agree with that. I'm not proposing that Alberta's rat patrol uh, take control of our uh, national defense here. Sure. Yeah. Okay, but let's, let's, and that's a pretty common conservative uh, uh, idea of subsidiarity. Right? Yeah. yeah. Local control. Yeah. So I uh, well, let's start with tax collection. So of the different powers, I'm talking about Alberta taking back tax collection is probably the most symbolic, but the least substantive. So. Right now, Quebec collects its own provincial taxes, but the CRA still collects federal taxes in Quebec. Yeah. Now, Andrew Scheer has proposed the most insane policy I have ever heard in changing this, and he's only ever said it in French. I don't, as far as I know, unless I'm mistaken, he's never once repeated it in English. But he has proposed that, and he proposed this before a by-election in Quebec that they ultimately won. He proposed that the that Quebec's revenue agency would be allowed to collect the federal taxes in Quebec as well and remit them to Ottawa. Yeah. Now that is crazy, but I like it for what Alberta could do. Because in Quebec's case, if Quebec collected federal taxes and decided, well, we're not sending them to Ottawa, well, Ottawa would have a pretty easy recourse because Quebec is a massive net recipient of dollars from Ottawa. So Ottawa could just simply not send as much money to Quebec and there's no difference. We just call it even. Yeah. That's very different in Alberta's case. If I'm, pro- I'm proposing that Alberta collect its own provincial taxes, not federal taxes. Collect our provincial taxes here. You can't withhold federal money from Ottawa because we're not collecting them. But if Quebec is allowed to collect its own, its federal taxes, then surely Alberta should be allowed the same. And if Alberta had that tool, I mean, um, that's a sort of Damocles hanging over Ottawa. We, we, there would be incredible leverage over not sending money to Ottawa. That being said, I would hope it would, come, not, it would never come to that. But I also view collecting our own taxes as potentially, as you said, actually a bargaining chip for other powers that are probably more pertinent to us. I want Alberta to have its own EI. It's, there's a very strong argument to make under the Constitution that like uh, pensions, that it's actually a provincial power that's just been subsumed by the federal government. Um, and employment insurance. A lot of people don't know this. We lose as much money out of employment insurance every year as we do on equalization. Yeah. Uh, it is designed for short-term cyclical annual unemployment, you know, like a... Like a ugh, everyone picks on the fishermen. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. Uh, but, you know, you, you work for a few months, you're off for a few months. It's, 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 produced for, it's designed for that. It's not designed for the guy who works in the oil patch for 10 years, doesn't collect a dime for 10 years, then he's unemployed for two full years, but he can't collect for two years. Yeah. Um, so it's not designed for us. So we get comp- we get so ripped off on EI. So I, I would consider uh, tax collection. Uh, I would co- Alberta doing it over the federal government is best for. Uh, not that I want new bureaucrats, but if we're paying. But, but isn't that one of the results though? Like, what, what what do you say to that charge that you're duplicating service well, that exists? So it's a complicated agreement. But Ottawa has an agreement with nine of the ten provinces. That they'll collect our taxes for us, yeah. but um, there's a lot of financial benefits to it. Um, they get um, they essentially take some money off the top, like we pay them to collect our taxes. Uh, so essentially, we're paying for the bureaucrats in Ottawa. So you'd be paying only our own bureaucrats. We'd be paying our own bureaucrats to do it. It'd be it'd be essentially a wash, but instead of having people employed in Ottawa, we'd have people employed in Edmonton. 
All right, let's let's turn the page a little bit to the, the current issues facing our province. We touched a little bit on the fiscal framework. Obviously, this is really top of mind for everyone. And one one bit of I've had trouble with just reconciling uh, people's fiscal plans, and I, I would put yours into that category too. Is is the use of oil and gas revenues in the base budget of the operating budget of the province? Mm-hmm. And you know, I think. The ADP's fiscal plan, the UCP fiscal plan, your kind of shadow budget that you put out for this year talks about, you know, how quickly you can get to balance. You know, there's just varying degrees of how quickly we get to balance, what the Mm -hmm. revenue and, and, and operating mix is. But the part I have trouble with is every single one still depends on the use of oil and gas revenues to be part of balance. To me, that's not almost not, not even like a real balancing the budget because philosophically, my opinion is that that type of non-renewable resource revenue directly derived from royalties doesn't belong anywhere near an operating budget. It should be either for debt payment or one-time infrastructure investment for uh, you know, economic development purposes or just pure savings because it's a, mm-hmm. a resource from our generation that won't necessarily all, always be there or be as valuable for future generations. So we have a sort of a ethical responsibility to save it. Where do you land on that question of the use of oil and gas resources vis-a-vis our fiscal framework? We talked a little bit about we ought not to have a deficit, but do you think we ought not to have a deficit in whatever tax and revenue and cost structure that uses oil and gas revenue more as an icing on the cake or a, a covenant to future generations as opposed to spending it on normal operations of the government today? Well, the short answer is yes. I actually agree with I agree with you. Uh, here's the problem. Every party in Alberta will say yes, but. But as you know, everything before the but is bullshit. Um, All right. So I, 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 I agree. Uh, royalties are should be considered intergenerational wealth. Yeah. Um, the money that we that we that Albertans get from selling our, our our the ownership of our of our resources and royalties uh, should be there for all generations to enjoy. Our balanced budget plan does include the use of uh, of these royalties. The NDP in the last election said, "Well, we're going to get us off the revenue royalty revenue roller coaster." Uh, Alison Redford said that before Jim her. Uh, yeah, Jim Prentice said it. Alison Redford said it. Stelmax said it. How come um, no one does it? Is it just politics? It's. I think it. I think it very much is. The and are you guilty reality. of playing the same game? Then. Well, I've never had my hands on the damn budget. <laughs> um, I fear that the, there is great political pressures in it, and I've uh, I've been greatly critical of this in the past. Um, I've tried to. I've come a bit more understanding now. I think of maybe the political reality of it. I'll put it this way: our balanced budget plan right now. The reason we put it out as we did is we're trying to compare apples to apples to other political parties. Yeah. Uh, the way I've always calculated, I, I calculate what is a balanced budget very differently than other parties. I believe it means when you're spending less money than you bring in. That's Believe it or not, that's not the way the government calculates what a balanced yeah, budget is. So you're is. talking about the bifurcation of, for example, capital and operating? Yes, and capital and operating are different and yeah. should be accounted for differently. But the way I consider a deficit is all in your net change in financial assets. That is, yeah. do you have more money versus... Uh, do you have more assets versus obligations year over year? That's the bottom line. Yeah. Uh, we're the only political party that actually thinks that's the way you should do that. Yeah. And that's the way Ralph Klein did it. But we're, you know, our balanced budget plan is trying to compare apples to apples. Otherwise, you know, the media who spend 10 seconds looking at these things and don't understand the numbers, they would think that our balanced budget plan is less aggressive than the NDP's. Yeah. So we're trying to compare apples to apples. But I, I agree. We need to get to a point where our government is not reliant upon royalties. I don't know if we're going to get to a point ever where we'll have no reliance upon it, but what what we need to come to is a solid framework that we can build some consensus beyond just one political party on. Uh, I don't necessarily like Norway's model per se. It's a, you know, they're a different jurisdiction, different challenges, different advantages. Uh, But what they, they did do something that was right is they 
came to a broad all-party consensus on what the framework would be. We can disagree what the framework should be. Yeah. They came to a consensus, and they had a referendum, and they essentially locked it in. Yeah. So that regardless of what party was in power, they would have to respect the framework of where this money could go. Yeah. I would propose, maybe as a starting point, that 50% of our uh, yeah. natural resource revenues is off the table. It yeah. just goes straight into the Heritage Fund, yeah. and we don't get to touch it. But you do have to have something for the for the political reality of it for the voters of today to enjoy. Yeah. So you could, you know, the interest yeah. could go towards uh, operational spending. Yeah. Uh, but fifty percent of the of it should, of the revenue should go directly into it. Um, yeah, because the charge has always been about you know the 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 quote unquote Alberta advantage. That's this common phrase. It, mm-hmm. It's a common expression of what you you know you talked about a little bit. It was Alberta exceptionalism, but. You know, the critical eye, if you were to look at it, it seems to be a borrowing against the future using existing revenues, using those revenues to keep other forms of revenue yeah. generation, taxes in particular, well, there's some, kind of artificially yeah. low. So there's something to be said yeah. for trying to keep uh, – future generations also do benefit from economic development yeah. today. No, that's, that's fair. And so yeah. if we – you know, so having a portion – There's a compounding effect of yeah. that. I used to be in the camp where I, I, I said – no natural resource revenues. Period. Just one hundred percent to the to the heritage fund. Yeah. You know that was before. I, I was when I was at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and it was perhaps more ideological. It was not recognizing that just no government is ever going to do it. Yeah. So let's. But right now, nothing is going in. Yeah. So let's try to find some Balance. common ground. Hey oh. <laughs> See, uh, aptly named podcast. Yeah. It's a useful. Let's try to. <laughs> but try to find some common ground across yeah. the political divide. Okay. The government of the day gets to spend 50% on the goodies, and yeah. that could be on more spending or on lower taxes, whatever yeah. you want. The other half is going straight in. And and lock that in as a part. You know, we've proposed an Alberta constitution. Yeah. And an Alberta constitution. That would be a principle you'd bake in. That would be a yeah. principle we yeah. could bake in. But again, that would be very important to do that with some kind of also party support. You would not put it in a particular budget. Yeah. Because, you know, when you have... I think philosophically, it wouldn't be that hard to get alignment on. The, I think we the could. The problem is the party in power well, so, is the one that see, has to implement. You would need a genuinely goodwill yeah. effort to reach out. You would have to have it separate from whatever budget is in front of you. Yeah. And it party, probably would have been very easy to do in good times. It would have been. Yes. Yeah. It's harder to do in bad times. Yeah. But you know, you would have, you know, if party A is in power, party B is going to vote against the budget. Yeah. That's just what they do. So you'd have to have it separately and apart come to an agreement, and you'd put it in a referendum and bake it into a constitution yeah. to take it off the table. All right. So you've, you've, on, your, on your website, you talk about you, you, the statement you make is the only way to balance the province's consolidated budget in a reasonable time frame is to cut wasteful government spending. But isn't that only 50% of the story? Oh, okay. Well, our, our, alternative, bu- if our, I could say, uh, our alternative budget said we have to either, either raise taxes or cut spending or a combination of the both. Okay. Our party chooses the spending side. Okay. What I'm saying is the status quo that both the PCs before the NDP, the NDP today, and the UCP are all going for is essentially some form of we're not going to raise taxes, but we promise not to grow spending too fast, and this will and the budget will balance itself. And we've done that for a yeah. decade. What I'm saying is, well, if the NDP are going to be honest, they need to put forward more taxes. Yeah. I disagree with that policy. And if conservatives, FCP or UCP, are being honest with ourselves, we need to cut spending. But simply doing nothing is going to result in more deficits. So why I, – I, I've heard the argument often that you know, from a per capita spending point of view, Alberta is, is very high. It's the highest in Canada on its own services. And I think there is logic to talking about how we can constrain that cost. There's some reasons behind some of those costs, just given the competitive nature of the labor market here. There's going to be some natural – uh, ele- you know, escalation in, in, in labor costs because our, our, our private sector... That was maybe of... true in good, yeah. in good times. It's not true right now, especially when you, you add in the job security that come with government jobs versus private yeah. sector jobs. A lot of people would be glad to hand in uh, trade in their private sector yeah. job for a lower-paying uh, public sector job that comes with a pension and job security and benefits. But why not look at the revenue side? Like, Why is the conservative side just purely allergic to any discussion of fiscal framework from the revenue side be like yeah you know like even even trade-offs maybe it's you know barely even net positive i think there's some you know attraction to the idea that we should have some 
some debt avoidance by making sure our revenue picture is a little bit better in the short so term. Because... I think I know where you're going. And okay. I, and I'm going to do something I shouldn't, but I will do anyway. I'm <laughs> All going, right. I am going to give credit to liberal leader David Kahn. Yes, I tweeted about him last night just yeah. about... He thought very far outside yeah. the box in proposing a sales tax with a very significant reduction in the corporate tax and, right. and the personal income tax. I was shocked. It's the first time I've seen a good idea from a liberal in a very long time. Now, I'm, I am allergic to taxes, but we do need taxes. What's the cost of doing business? They, they are a necessary evil. If we're going to have taxes, we should have the most efficient taxes possible. Growth-promoting taxes. Yeah, the yeah. ones that yeah. uh, don't... That... That's what was fairly attractive about his proposal. Yeah, and every economist in the world, left, right, and center, will agree that a sales tax is much less damaging and distortionary to an economy than taxes on businesses and income. Yeah. Um, so he's quite right there. Now, I'm always worried, though, about how it'll actually come in. Are we going to get sure. the the other side of it? Are we going to get that an, an equivalent income tax cut or business tax cut? Um, what I what I think he's said, it, it, well, it's not entirely revenue neutral. If if we were ever to go down this road, I would want it to be completely revenue neutral. Yeah. And there's but there's there's merit to it. I think it's worth it's it's worth serious discussion. And I. Uh, and I'll give credit where credit's due that, that he's put this on the table. Yeah. Uh, I actually think it's a discussion worth having. It's not in our platform. Yeah. Um, but it's a bold idea. Yeah. And uh, we're not used to seeing bold ideas from the Alberta yeah. Liberals. Absolutely. But yeah, no, I, I, I don't want to see net higher taxes in Alberta. Yeah. If we want to have a discussion about what's the best way to collect taxes but not uh, tax people on aggregate more, uh, th- th- I'd, I'd be very open to that. But um uh, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, well, we need to raise taxes so we can pay for all this. I'd say, well, maybe we should just not spend as much on all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, we uh, some areas of our public sector have actually um, shown some significant restraint. Our teachers and doctors have had freezes for yeah. uh, a little over seven years now. Yeah. Uh, other areas uh, are far overpaid where you've got equivalent. It, you, the trade-off, kind of coming back to where we were, the trade-off used to be if you're in the private sector, you made more, uh, a lot more. More volatility, though, less but, security. Yeah, yeah, you didn't get the yeah. security. You didn't get the pension, none of that yeah. stuff. Uh, but if you're in the public sector, you made less, but you had security and pension and all that. Yeah, It's actually not true anymore where yeah. there are, um, for a huge number of positions uh, across Canada, especially in Alberta, where you actually, in addition to the job security and the pension the benefits, you actually make more in equivalent jobs in the public sector. And, and that is not sustainable. And a lot of that happened when we had $100 oil yeah. and governments were just, you know, uh, under... Uh, and part of it's just the time lag of union contracts. Like, it doesn't match the cycles necessarily, right? Yeah. Like, you've seen that in, in a lot of municipal contracts where they were signed in tw- the beginning of 2014 and they ran through the recession yeah. with escalations. And there's just no way you can get out yeah. of it. Yeah. Oh, and they gradually built up over time. I mean, like, this yeah. stuff... Um, Geez, I mean, there's two Ralph Kleins. There was the Ralph Klein I liked, and then there was the Ralph Klein who was kind of mailing it in at the end. Yeah. And by the end of Klein, he was, you know, Klein and Stelmack, they were, they were just signing any deal with unions to to buy peace and votes. Yeah. And and that's really created a problem. But also, what no one's talking about now is corporate welfare. I believe in low business taxes. Where we're, we're, our proposal is to cut the corporate tax. Uh, from 12 to 10 percent, not not eight as the Tories say, but to eliminate the small business tax on top of that. Yeah. Um, but you, if the trade-off used to be with Klein, you got low business taxes, but you got no corporate welfare. There was no subsidies yeah. for businesses. And both the NDP and the Tories are adamant that government should be picking winners and losers. Government should be in the business of business. Uh, that is a, an area where we spend a massive amount of money every year. And it's an important. Uh, it's a key part of our balanced budget plan is to completely eliminate, uh, completely nuke corporate welfare. There's a there's a couple of, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but there's a couple areas I wanted to kind of stress test. Um, kind of your your. We don't have too much time. I know we only have a few minutes. That's why I want to touch. I got on an this. election here. Yeah, I had a couple, just a couple more before we we finish. We're 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 right. We are running on time, but. A lot of news about the idea, some some of the hot water that the UCP has gone into, some of the comment, some of the comments you made pushing back on it and differentiating yourself from the UCP is that there's a there's a large strain of social conservatism in the UCP that bubbles up through statements 
uh, like Mark Smith made in, in the past and stuff like that, you've tweeted kind of in response, like if you're looking for a party that doesn't care about what you do in the bedroom, you know, come look at us kind of thing. So I'm assuming this is sort of tied to your, your sort of more libertarian, you know, a philosophical framework as it relates to so, social issues, sort of a, would it be fair to say like philosophically, you know, in terms of freedom, that the, the word you, you've, you've baked into your party name, that there's sort of a, a live and let live, do whatever you want, so long as you're not harming or imposing on other people. Well, that's essentially, yeah. you know, what, what, that, that's something I say all the time is, and not just on the sexual yeah. political issues, on everything. If, if you're an adult and you're not hurting anybody else, it's none of the government's business. Yeah. And, and we apply that very broadly, even until a relatively minor issue like the flavored tobacco ban. Yeah. If you're an adult, you have a right to pick how you want to kill yourself. Yeah. Now, so I guess to kind of bring it to a larger level before we zoom back in. Yeah. Uh, you know, the CBC put out their vote compass, and it's a weird tool. I mean, it asks questions. It, try, it, it puts people along uh, a two-dimensional yeah. uh, continuum, left, right, economically, and social progressive, social conservative. On the economic issues, um, it, I, I suppose it is more accurate than on the uh, social issues, uh, on the fiscal issues and the social issues. It... Um, because it tries to peg people as socially progressive, socially conservative, or somewhere in the center between the two. Yeah. And we don't fall on either. Right. We are not, you know, do not mistake a libertarian for a social progressive. Right. Or not a social the same thing. Not the same They're thing. very different. Yeah. I mean, uh, I might be uh, completely tolerant and acceptable of uh, <laughs> what some of the UCP might call homosexual love. Yeah. But... Um, it doesn't mean that I share the NDP's view that, you know, it needs to be necessarily government endorsed. Right. You know, uh, I might uh, be the only conservative in Alberta that believes in legalizing cannabis, but it doesn't mean I think you should do it. Yeah. Um, so we, we just, you know, when on that social continuum of the CBC's vote compass, we view it more as one end is authoritarianism, yeah. the other end a left is, right doesn't really. It's not a really. No. It's, it's sort of economics. You uh, doesn't compute. Quite you can the do same a broad left right on economics, yeah. but on social, you know, social. You might call it interventionist versus more libertarian kind of interventionist or authoritarian, and and in that case, uh, some social conservatives and some social are more interventionists. Yeah, yeah, they would stand for different yeah. interventions or yeah. forms of authority. But they would both believe in the power of the state to do so, yeah. whereas we don't. And we don't fall in the center there. So, you know, you'd have... So the question I wanted to drill down on is, on that, is when you have, uh, you know, two sort of liberties that might be at odds with one another. So in your platform, you talked about kind of the liberty of, you know, religious freedom and, and funding religious schools and private schools and stuff like that. And then you have the rights of the and, and liberties of the individual. And often you can not often, but sometimes you can have those two liberties at odds with one another. So I wanted to drill down to see where you have an instance where maybe you have a LGBT teacher in a in a religious institution. Mm -hmm. They feel that their their interpretation of scripture is, you know, this is not something that I that's not central to the faith. But then you have an institution like a school that might be under under a government like yours, publicly funded, and the school wants to fire the teacher, the teacher feels it has the right to the job. Where yeah. where do you fall on a, the hard case like that, where institutional liberties and religious freedom mm -hmm. might be at odds with individual liberty? These are they at odds in your brain, or if they're at odds, where do you yeah. where do you land? Who who do you side with? So that's a really good question. In addition to being a tough one, it's a good <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. Um, so all the most complex questions are where you have conflicting freedoms, yeah. conflicting liberties. Yeah. The thing is, people will generally pick one freedom over another depending on what your social values support. Yeah. So let's let's take example uh, Bill Nine. This was a bill from the NDP that uh, made it illegal for pro-life protesters to protest within a few hundred meters of an abortion clinic. Yeah. You ha women have a right to access. Uh, their health care options, even ones uh, some people might strongly disagree with. People have an ac access to go about their business without being harassed, period. Yes. But people also have a right to assembly, yeah. to free speech, yeah. uh, and to conscience. 
these are conflicting rights. The NDP did not see it, see it as conflicting rights. The Tories just saw it as politically inconvenient. They walked out. Yeah. They refused to debate the bill. They walked out of the legislature more than 12 times on different votes. And I was the only person to stand up in the legislature to vote against it and, uh, and to fight against the bill. Now, for me, the line I, I, I drew in trying to amend the bill was that it should be illegal. And actually, it already is illegal, was illegal, but uh, we further clarify it, that you cannot uh, harass people entering an abortion clinic, you can't yell at them, you can't block them, etc. But if you want to peacefully protest, that you have the right. If you're pro-life, pro most pro-life protesters don't protest in front of an abortion clinic. It's the worst possible place to make your point. You are, it's an incompassionate thing to do if some people feel very strongly about the issue, and, uh, and in some respects I sympathize with them. Um, but it is a very uncompassionate way to do it, uh, to shame a woman who's already made that choice. Yeah. Um, but the violation of liberty is not worth banning their pro right to protest altogether, period. Uh, so the most difficult cases are always trying to find a balance where you have conflicting, uh, conflicting liberties. That is what courts are for. That's what uh, a constitution is for. I often think our courts get the balance wrong. I... Uh, I think free speech is the highest, most inviolable right above all. Other. I think free speech trumps all others, not in 100% of cases. It's sort of a master principle. Yeah. It's the master principle. I draw the line of free speech on yeah. doing actual harm or advocating harm to others. If you're not doing harm or, or advocating harm to others, you can do it. Um, but everybody has a hierarchy of their favorite rights. Yeah. Um, I mean, some for the NDP, the right to unionize is more important than the right to free speech and the more yeah. right, more than the right to conscience and, and religion. Yeah. Um, and these are hard cases. And just to, to tie it together, I think the best way to proceed on those hard questions is to have a conversation in good faith. Is it not? Yeah, but, the, but you're not going to get it because these issues are now so politically loaded where... Um, both sides think they have the moral high ground and we're not speaking here's you and I are speaking to each other but this is not a regular political conversation when you've got two political but parties, it shouldn't it be more of a it, regular political it, conversation it, it, I, I would that's like, kind of why I do the podcast I would yeah. like that a lot but when you've got a political system that is zero sum uh, for one party to win the other party must lose yeah there is no god I'm gonna do it again. There is no, there's no incentive to find common ground unless you're losing and you want to neutralize an issue. Uh, the there is, we're going to chop up your audio saying "common ground" for a promo. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, they because they're going to bash each other over the head with it, and so you've got issues where you've got at-risk, vulnerable gay and lesbian youth who are being used as a political uh, pinata by. Uh, both of the two establishment parties yeah. to beat each other over the heads with it, and I, and frankly, you know, like when I meet with kids in high schools, uh, some of them who are, you know, gays or lesbians, they um, they're concerned about this, but they don't like being used as a political football. Right, and it, it's so politically torqued, and there's too many points to be had or yeah. lost on it that I don't think we're serving these people well. Where would you where would you stand on the teacher versus religious school, for instance? I, or is it too too nuanced and too circumstantial to, to comment on a case like that? Would you side more with the individual liberty I, or the institutional liberty? Well I, I, I prize individual liberty over uh, group uh, group rights every time. Yeah. Um, collective rights are a very dangerous concept because we're grouping people together and we're assuming um, that there's a natural right of a group, yeah. and I groups legally should be just be considered a collective of yeah. individuals without a special right for a group. I don't believe in Christian rights. I don't believe in Jewish rights or Muslim rights. I believe in religious right. rights, yeah. and that is just simply collectives of people who voluntarily come together to do something. Individual rights are tangible, and in uh, and a society with our fundamental. Uh, not to misuse the word, but a liberal democracy from our constitutional uh, foundations needs to always prize the right of the individual every time. Um, so in the case of, uh, of a gay teacher, first of all, I, I would just, if, if my daughter was going to uh, a school and uh, the school fired 
the teacher because he was gay. I'm pulling out my daughter the next day. I want nothing to do with them. Um, I don't think they should have uh, the right to do so because people have a right to be free from uh, undue discrimination. You can lose your job for doing a bad job. You can lose your job because the company ran out of money. Yeah. Um, but they shouldn't be allowed to fire you because of uh, of who you know your faith, your your race, or just how you're born sexually. All right. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, Derek. Really, really interesting to chat with you. It's been a long time coming. Um, and, uh, it does. <laughs> and and good luck in on April sixteenth. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It was great. Common Ground YYC is a production of Livewire Calgary. If you value quality local journalism, please consider supporting Livewire by following it on social media, by clicking and reading stories, advertising, or contributing directly via Patreon. Visit livewirecalgary.com.